This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Today's episode is brought to you by Kronos. Kronos provides HR solutions for the modern workforce and the people who support, motivate, and engage them. They put HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping on a single cloud-based platform. Learn more about Kronos HR, payroll, talent, and time at kronos.com slash hrswagger. That's kronos.com slash hrswagger. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. You might know the name Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, and you might know that he served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that he received a Bronze Star for his military service. But you might not know that he was a platoon leader with the storied 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. As a soldier in the Old Guard, he carried the flag-draped remains of his fallen comrades off of airplanes at Dover Air Force Base, and he laid them to rest in Arlington's famed Section 60, often called the saddest acre in America. He also performed hundreds of funerals for veterans of the greatest generation, as well as the Korean and Vietnam Wars. The Old Guard has embodied the ideals of honor and sacrifice across our nation's history. Its soldiers hold themselves to the standard of perfection in sweltering heat, frigid cold, and driving rain. Every funeral is a no-fail, zero-defect mission, whether honoring a humble private or guarding Arlington's Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Now Senator Tom Cotton has written about this American institution in a new book titled Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. And today, he comes on the podcast to recall the storied history of this famous regiment that goes all the way back to the American Revolution and the rigorous training he underwent to become a member of this elite regiment. He describes what it's like to perform a military funeral in America's most hallowed cemetery and how the soldiers of the Old Guard managed to avoid getting choked up. Senator Cotton shares some of the other ceremonies that the Old Guard performs and how the Old Guard played a pivotal role at the Pentagon in the hours and days following 9-11. Plus, we talk about the special soldiers who guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier day and night in all kinds of weather, how they deal with unruly children and noisy tourists, and why modern science means there will probably never be another unknown soldier again. Coming up with Senator Tom Cotton in just a minute. guest today is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Prior to his election to the U.S. Senate, he was congressman for Arkansas's 4th District, served in Iraq with the 101st Airborne Division, and in Afghanistan with a provisional reconstruction team, having received numerous awards for his service, including the Bronze Star. Between combat tours, he served with the United States Army's 3rd Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard, at Arlington National Cemetery. Now he writes about these distinguished soldiers who honor our nation's fallen in a new book titled Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. Senator Tom Cotton, welcome. Thanks for having me on, Ben, and thanks for your interest in Sacred Duty. Well, Senator, I'm glad to have you on the show. I certainly enjoyed the book. And you say in Sacred Duty that whenever you meet with your constituents from Arkansas, 
they don't necessarily ask about what it's like to be in the U.S. Senate or what the president's like. They always want to know about the old guard. What is it that they usually want to know? That's true, Ben. Uh, I, I first saw this in my first campaign for the House as I was introducing myself to Arkansans all around the state. And when they learned more about my story, the question they asked most commonly was not about Iraq or Afghanistan, but Arlington National Cemetery. And as you say, when they come to visit me in Arkansas, in Washington, they usually carve out a few extra days to see the sites. And I like to ask them what their favorite stop was. And they almost always say Arlington National Cemetery. So it was very special to me to serve at the Old Guard in 2007 and 2008. I don't think I really appreciated just what a special place it is in the hearts of so many of our fellow Americans until I've had this experience in public life. I think it's a reflection of the respect and the reverence, even the love that Americans feel for our war heroes, especially those who fell in the line of duty and that they fail for the old guard, which is the army regiment we entrust as a nation to honor those heroes. A lot of us have been to Arlington and been to the tomb of the unknown soldier, but I don't think I'm alone in that. I didn't know that there was a special regiment assigned to that. I guess I probably assumed that it was, uh, you know, just any old soldier could do that. It's not the case at all. It turns out uh, who exactly are the old guard. So the old guard is literally the old guard of the army. They were stood up in 1784, three years older than our Constitution. And for the first 160 years, they fought our nation's battles from the War of 1812 to the Mexican-American War to every major battle on the eastern front of the Civil War, from the first battle of Bull Run to Gettysburg, to Cuba, to the Philippines. But in 1948, the Army assigned its oldest regiment to its most sacred ground, Arlington National Cemetery. And for 71 years, the Old Guard has been the official ceremonial unit of the army performing military honor funerals in the cemetery. Most people who visit Arlington will walk up the hill to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and they'll see one of the very small specialized units with inside the Old Guard, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Platoon, no more than 25 or 30 soldiers really at a time who guard the tomb. Uh, but there are 1,500 soldiers total in the Old Guard and they're performing military wow. honor funerals every day in the cemetery up to 20 or 30 a day. They perform ceremonies all around the region. They perform for huge uh, events with international attention, like sporting events or the presidential inauguration. They also perform for small schools as well. Uh, they do uh, a plethora of missions. And uh, the primary mission, of course, is funerals with inside Arlington National Cemetery, but they really are the face of the Army, not only to the families inside Arlington, but the face of the Army to the world as well. Now, where does the name Old Guard come from? Is that just because they are so old and they go back to 1784 or what? So that name reflects their old and distinguished history as early as 1847. In the second major campaign of the Mexican-American War, the campaign for Mexico City in 1847, General Winfield Scott was their commander. They had served alongside a much younger General Winfield Scott in 1814 up in the Niagara Falls region during the War of 1812, and they were a decisive element in several of the battles on the march up from Veracruz to Mexico City in 1847. So at the end of that war, when Mexican forces abandoned Mexico City and Winfield Scott arranged for the victory march into the capital city, he put the Old Guard at the front of the, reg at the, front of the parade. Uh, then known as it still is officially as the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment. And as they led that march in, past the reviewing stand, he turned around to his staff officers and said, gentlemen, take your hats off to the old guard of the Army. Huh. 
and the name stuck, and it has uh, been known as the Old Guard ever since Ever then. since. And, and I read that you came into the Old Guard under somewhat unusual circumstances. You didn't actually apply, right? For a unit that is typically volunteer and applicant only, I did not apply. I was voluntold, as you might say, <laughs> in the Army. Uh, the, so the backstory there is, first off, about the very high eligibility standards for the Old Guard. Mm-hmm. They perform a very sensitive mission in the cemetery, a very prominent mission in front of foreign leaders and the president. So the Army wants to be sure their very best soldiers are going to the Old Guard, both in the physical sense. They have very yeah. strict height and weight standards, physical fitness standards, but also the intellectual and moral sense. Old Guard privates have some of the highest test scores on the Army's general intelligence test, and they can't have any legal troubles in their background or blemishes on their character. And the privates are the, the lion's share of all the soldiers there, as they are in any infantry regiment. Uh, officers and non-commissioned officers have a few more requirements. So officers, for instance, had to be ranger qualified and airborne qualified. They almost always perform the job for which they're applying proficiently at another Army unit beforehand. But uh, that was not my path into the Old Guard. I uh, got an email towards the end of my time in Iraq in late 2006 that said my application had been accepted. That was very curious, since I had not submitted an application. Yeah, that's so I called, interesting. Yeah, so I went up to the call trailer that night in Baghdad and called back to Fort Myer, which is the small base adjacent to the cemetery where the old guard lives and works, and uh, asked the adjutant, the personnel officer, what had happened. And he explained that you know, the Army was, as all Army units in those days were strained for personnel, but the old guard is a priority mission for the Army. So they chose six officers coming back from Iraq uh, by hand. I was like, oh, that's great because I thought that would be because of my superior performance as a new <laughs> platoon leader in Iraq. Normally when you're chosen by hand in the Army, it means that you've done a good job and you're yeah. getting more responsibility. So I asked him how he chose us. He said he'd gone through all those criteria in the Army and then picked six. And I said, well, there must be more than six of us that fit all those criteria as young captains and lieutenants. And he said, oh, there are a couple hundred of you. I said, well, how did you choose us at this point? I was certain it was my superior <laughs> performance. But then he said, we just – Rank ordered you by height and chose the six tallest ones. <laughs> and uh, and sure enough, within a few months, by early 2007, there were six new lieutenants and captains all recently returned from Iraq with the 101st Airborne. And one was 6'7", and I'm 6'5", and the other four were 6'3". Now, why do they want uh, such tall recruits? They want soldiers to present a strong mm-hmm. soldierly appearance in uniform. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uniforms are all very well tailored, tapered down to show off a strong V-shaped taper of the torso that you expect a physically fit young infantryman to have. That's about presenting a a good appearance uh, Mm -hmm. in the cemetery. It's also about presenting a strong soldierly appearance in places like the South Lawn of the White House with a visiting head of state or on the River Lawn of the Pentagon uh, during the visit of a foreign minister of defense or chief of defense. As I write in Sacred Duty, Jim Mattis came out once to speak to some of the soldiers of the Old Guard who were there to perform a welcome ceremony for a foreign dignitary, and he said, "You like you guys look good out here. You look intimidating. That's what, that's what we're going for." <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the military, they take such great pains to drive it in that your shoes have to be polished and everything has to be perfect. And it sounds like with the old guard, it's even more so. It is more so. You know, it can take two to three months to get a soldier trained to perform those missions, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is preparing their uniform. There are industrial size presses like you'd see at a dry cleaner um, in the basement of every barracks on Fort Myer. We spent hours and hours pressing all of those pleats into our coats and into our pants and then time each night after funerals, getting them back in those pristine condition. Much of the material we put on our uh, 
coats, the insignia were not off the rack things that you could buy at the military clothing store, but mm -hmm. things that we had handmade using really? basically arts and craft tools that you could get at <laughs> Hobby Lobby or, or your local hardware no store. Kidding. And that was all designed to make sure that the family saw nothing but a perfect image of what a soldier should be and should look like. It wasn't done out of a matter of fussiness or um, desire just to look pretty. It was des designed to show honor to the sacrifice that their loved one had made and present them that perfect final moment of honor. And uh, it can take a lot of time. It can be very tedious to prepare a uniform, especially after you've been out in the rain or the snow. You've been out in yeah. the summer heat and sweated through it. But I thought one tomb sentinel summed it up pretty well. He had uh, been gotten rained on, which more or less ruins your uniform. You have to start over from scratch. Spend several hours in those press machines. And he said uh, of the three unknowns on that plaza, they didn't give just give up their lives for our nation. They gave up their very identities. When you think of that kind of sacrifice, what sacrifice is it to us to mm -hmm. lose a night of sleep so yeah. we can represent them in the best way possible? Certainly. What kind of training do you undergo in the old guard? Yeah, I'm assuming that must be pretty rigorous. Yeah, as I write in sacred, <laughs> as I write in sacred duty, it's a, an unusual unit because it does get some of the very finest soldiers in the army, whether they're new privates or battle-hardened officers and sergeants. Yet, when everyone gets to the old guard again, whether they're a private or the new regimental commander, they don't know at all how to perform their mission. I mean, that's huh. very unusual in the army. You know, when you take over, say, a, a normal infantry regiment at a place like Fort Campbell or Fort Bragg, you've held every job an officer has in that yeah. infantry regiment up to that position. Yeah. So you know exactly you know exactly what an infantry regiment does. Mm -hmm. Not the case of the Old Guard. As I write in Sacred Duty, they had a change of command for regimental commanders. The new commander, Colonel Jim Tewitt, had never served in the Old Guard before. So he was at the Old Guard for two to three months, performing all of the administrative and other leadership responsibilities of a regimental commander, but not performing in ceremonies because he himself had to go through the training that I did as a young lieutenant or that new privates do as well. So it takes about two to three months to learn how to prepare your uniform, to march in the Old Guard style. If you're part of a small team for funerals, to do things like fold a flag in exactly one minute and 55 seconds. Or if you're part of a firing party, to fire with six other soldiers and make seven rifles crack as one. Yeah, um, That training Very can take two, two, to three out, two to three months. And then there's constant refresher training and retraining. Uh, practicing in the morning before funerals, after, at the end of the day, doing a refresher training if there's just the slightest detail that was off. But again, that's all designed to ensure that the family in a moment of grief also has a space to grieve and they're not distracted or they don't see any small mistake, no matter how small it might be. Yeah. The standard for every yeah. single funeral, no matter how big it is, no matter how distinguished or how humble the decedent is, is the standard of perfection. Now, what goes into an Arlington funeral? Walk us through that from start to finish. And it starts long before the mourners arrive, right? Yeah, for the old guard, it starts well before that. There's all that practice and rehearsal that goes in. Uh, the companies today will typically spend um, two out of every four weeks performing funerals. One, one of those weeks will be fully devoted, all of its personnel. And another week, it'll be the backup company. Mm -hmm. But it still has to provide a lot of personnel to the primary company. But when you're in the primary funeral week, um, it's a very long week. It's a very full week. You know, you show up uh, first thing in the morning, usually before sunlight. The leaders will go out in a van to recon the grave sites to ensure there's no surprises like a downed tree, which Arlington has today because of storms last week, or a particularly difficult carry for the casket team up a hill or down a hill. 
so there was no surprises in the last minute at the uh, grave site. Um, then you go back, you spend the morning doing final touch-up on your uniform. There's a final check-in because all the teams are operating in a decentralized fashion. There may be three or four funerals going on at any given moment. And oh, a, lot yeah. of those, a lot of those funerals are not going to have a senior leader in charge of them. They're going to have junior leaders, which is a, reflects the, how much responsibility young soldiers have at the Old Guard. Uh, missions that, at other units might have a very senior non-commissioned officer or even a colonel overseeing them at the Old Guard might have a corporal or a mm-hmm. sergeant. Um, then we break out and we get on buses. We go out to the funerals. You get out, you leave an hour before every funeral begins. You usually get to the gravesite at least 45 minutes before each funeral begins. Even though we may have performed these funerals hundreds of times, we do a talk-through rehearsal before each funeral. And uh, an Arlington Cemetery representative, which is really kind of the key link between the family and the cemetery and the old guard, comes up about 10 or 15 minutes prior to brief us on you know, if there's an unusual casket that may be difficult to carry or an oddly shaped urn, what the family situation is like, how big they are, you know, if there's any tensions in the family. Then uh, we also link up with some of the adjacent units that supported the funerals in the cemetery, like the U.S. Army Band, the Caisson Platoon, which has the horses that pull the horse-drawn caisson. And then only then at that point, you know, on the hour does the funeral begin after all those wow. preparations have gone into it. As you point out in the book, the old guard has to remain professional and stoic when they're performing a funeral. Yet, you know, for most of us, a funeral is already a pretty heart-rending event. Plus, you're honoring a fallen hero, and you have the military band playing hymns and the 21-gun salute and all of these poignant traditions that we associate with an Arlington funeral. Is it hard not to get emotional? Well, the Old Guard trains all of its soldiers from the earliest days to maintain what we call ceremonial composure, Mm -hmm. precisely for that reason. Because when you see families mourning at the gravesite, especially if it's a young soldier who was killed in action just a few days earlier, who might have a widow or widower, young children who may not fully understand what's happening, parents who are dealing with the loss of a child, of course it's challenging to maintain one's composure, especially for those of us who had lost friends or soldiers in combat, or who were just back from overseas as well. But uh, the old guard drills into its soldiers very early, and they internalize that message so the drilling can stop over time, that our our role in the cemetery is not to grieve. Mm-hmm. As grievous as the situation and circumstances may be, our role is to honor. It's the family's part to grieve. And our job is to ensure that we pay honor to them and to their grieving process. So even in the hardest moments when, as an officer in charge, you take that folded flag from the casket team and approach the next of kin and take a knee and say the condolences to those family members, um, it's the highest priority of an old guard soldier to maintain ceremonial composure. That's one reason, as I write in Sacred Duty, that we don't know that much about the deceased soldiers whom we're laying to rest. Yeah, that which was is unusual, interesting as you say. to keep most, a certain detachment, huh? Yeah, most people go to funerals, obviously, of people they know very well, family right. members and good friends. So they already know them very well. Obviously, when we're performing 20 to 30 funerals a day from veterans all across America, old guard soldiers can't know them. And some of that is historical. You know, the cemetery goes way back before the uh, Internet, so it's possible to get obituaries uh, to Washington in those days with that degree of frequency and volume. Some of it's administrative. The cemetery has great professional staff, but they are they work very hard, very long days. Try to put together flawless obituaries would be a challenge for them. Uh, but part of it is purposeful for our role um, mm-hmm. because our role is to honor and not to grieve. Um it creates a certain amount of distance between you and the and the family in advance. Now, 
we often would hear about the fallen soldier. Um, if you were the officer in charge, if you're on the casket team, you're only steps away from the family, the chaplain will step in who's gotten to know the family and the soldier over the previous couple of weeks and give the eulogy. So we'd hear their story. We'd hear their story if, if they were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan just two weeks mm-hmm. ago. We'd hear, the, hear their story if they were private in World War II and jumped into Normandy and fought in the Battle of the Bulge and then came home to Arkansas and lived a quiet, peaceful, happy life for 70 years. Um, but that was the only occasion in which we got to know much about the family. There were rare occasions in which family members, to express their gratitude, would run after us after the oh, funeral, really? try to catch yeah. us before we got on the bus to go to our next funeral, to thank us, tell us a little bit about their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to maintain that kind of emotional composure, uh, we didn't know much about the deceased soldiers whom we mm-hmm. laid to rest, other than just the most basics, you know, their last name, their initial, first initial, their rank their religious preference, who was going to be performing the service, if they had a religious preference, and what kind of honors it would be. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Senator Tom Cotton when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com KICK. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash kick. Ancestry connects you to the places in the world where your story started, using precise geographic detail and clear-cut historical insights. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. And to amplify your results, you can start a free trial on Ancestry and build a tree so your ancestors become more than just a name. Only Ancestry can tell such a rich story with unique features that give a more complete picture about a person. My wife recently took an Ancestry DNA test to learn more about her Scottish heritage, only to find out she's not Scottish at all, she's Irish. I was so blown away by her results that I immediately ordered my own Ancestry DNA kit. The test was incredibly easy to take, it only took 5 minutes, and now I can't wait to see if some of the old family stories are true. In the meantime, Ancestry DNA gives me real-time updates every step of the way. Go to Ancestry.com slash kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash kick. We're recording this two days after Memorial Day. I have to imagine that's a pretty important day at Arlington National Cemetery. What happens at Arlington on Memorial Day? So Memorial Day is the single biggest day inside of Arlington National Cemetery. It's been um, 
recognized there for over 150 years now. Wow. Uh, today, for the for many decades now, we've had what's called the National Memorial Day Observance, the NMDO in Old Guard and Army bureaucratic jargon. And uh, most Americans can see that on Memorial Day if they turn on their TV uh, at 11 a.m. or if they watch the evening news. The president, or in this case, as uh, was the case with Donald Trump, this year, if he's traveling overseas, the vice president or the secretary of defense mm-hmm. will lay a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Then they will uh, walk the short distance to the amphitheater and speak alongside the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to an assembled uh, audience of soldiers, veterans, just patriotic Americans who are visiting the cemetery. Um, it looks relatively small and controlled and contained. Uh, it's A lot goes into it. Planning starts months in advance. They do several rehearsals. All of those happen before 8 o'clock in the morning because that's when the cemetery opens, when they're rehearsing at the uh, plaza in the tomb and in the amphitheater. It takes over 500 personnel, uh, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen, to perform that mission, uh, even though you may only see a few dozen because the president receives 120 soldier cordon the streets of Arlington that salutes in a rippling fashion as he drives up the streets. The presidential salute battery is firing the big guns in a 21-gun salute when he enters the cemetery. There's several dozen um, ushers and security and other detailees around the amphitheater to make sure that everyone can focus where the focus should be on honoring those unknowns as a way to honor all of our fallen uh, heroes, as well as the words that are spoken in the amphitheater, but is a is a major military operation on Memorial Day. Yeah, and a lot of flag planting. Yeah, how many so, how many graves do you have to plant? So flags. flags so flags in is the Thursday before Memorial Day. That's really the I'd say the official kickoff of Memorial Day weekend inside of Arlington. So as as the final funerals begin to draw down at the end of the day, old guard soldiers take off their ceremonial blue uniforms and they put on their combat fatigues. That's the only time they wear combat fatigues into the cemetery all year long. And uh, they put on their rucksacks and their assault packs full of small American flags. Big flatbed trucks drive in with boxes and boxes of additional flags, pulling water buffaloes to keep soldiers well hydrated in what can be pretty hot weather. And they place a flag at every single grave in Arlington National Cemetery, uh, almost 245,000 flags. Wow. It takes uh, several hours to do, but it is, a, yeah. like I said, a major military operation yeah. that's been planned for yeah. weeks in advance with rehearsals, uh, using radio to coordinate movements uh, this past week. It was uh, just so happened that they got struck by a very uh, violent uh, thunderstorm. So uh, you may have seen on social media some of the images of Old Guard soldiers to include the tomb guards placing flags in the driving rain. In fact, it got so bad that the soldiers had to uh, put the their various unit colors, which are on flagstaffs with metal spears at the top and their uh, radios, which are obviously metal, down underneath trees and go out and stand in the middle of sections in the cemetery that don't have any trees in them. So they just stood there in the rain to avoid the lightning until the lightning passed and they could go wow. back to their mission, but they never left. There's never any doubt that they'd stay in the cemetery as long as it took to mm-hmm. get those flags in for Memorial Day weekend, which is a reminder to everyone who visits, many family and friends included, that uh, your loved one had a moment in the last few days with a 
inheritor of his military legacy. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely dedication to the job. And in addition to their work at Arlington, the old guard is also charged with conducting what's called a dignified transfer, which brings to mind those flag draped caskets that we see coming into Dover Air Force Base. So the dignified transfer remains at Dover Air Force Base, goes back many decades, it's gone under different names, but that's what it's known today and has been for a long time. Since 2003, the old guard has performed that mission for our fallen coming out of Iraq or Afghanistan or other theaters in the war on terrorism. As I write in Sacred Duty, I perform the dignified transfer of remains on probably two or three dozen occasions. Hmm. I would take a six-man casket team and and fly along with a general escort uh, officer uh, in a Black Hawk helicopter from Washington to Dover Air Force Base to perform that mission. And as the officer in charge, I was the first one into the cargo hold to inspect the flag-draped cases and one of the soldiers to carry them off the plane initially. Uh, it's a very poignant moment, and you don't, yeah. you can't forget that image uh, when you reflect on one's service. We mentioned some of the other roles that the old guard plays in addition to the funerals and the dignified transfers. And in particular, the old guard actually played an essential role at the Pentagon immediately following 9-11. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so put yourself... Uh, in Arlington National Cemetery on 9-11. It was a beautiful fall morning, uh, very blue skies, uh, temperate weather. Funerals began at 9 a.m. So 37 minutes later, American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the western face of the Pentagon. As I write in Sacred Duty, some of the caisson soldiers whose role in the funeral ends after the first 10 or 15 minutes had hitched their horses to a hitching post, and they saw an aircraft flying in, not along the normal north-south route, uh, that uh, airplanes take in and out of Reagan National as they fly over Arlington National Cemetery, but flying from west to east, and they saw it mm. and slam into the Pentagon. So, obviously, yeah, that's a, the Pentagon's right across. It's right? maybe a, a football yeah. field across yeah. from the southeast corner of Arlington, where most funerals today are being performed in the southeast mm-hmm. corner. So, obviously, every person in the, in the cemetery, to include the old guard soldiers and the um, mourners at the funerals, heard that explosion. They saw the smoke rising up. Yet the funerals continued. And they continued at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock and throughout the rest of the day because funerals truly are a a no-fail and zero-defect mission. But for all those old guard soldiers who were not performing funerals that day, they really became the first soldiers in our Army to deploy to a new battlefront uh, in the war on terrorism. The medical platoon from the old guard went down there first to help provide first aid to all the walking wounded. Then the rest of the infantrymen uh, were deployed down to the Pentagon to help perform security, uh, both outside the building and inside the building. And then sadly, over the next several days, uh, they took the lead in the recovery of remains and personal effects from inside the Pentagon. That was very difficult, very mm-hmm. tough mission. You know, they had to wear biohazard yeah. suits because of all the, the toxins that could have been released, as well as the biohazards. Um, you know, not every day after September 11th was temperate. A lot of those days were very hot. Um, they were there for 30 days performing that mission. Wow. Um, funerals continued in the cemetery. They never stopped. But uh, it was a very, very tough mission, but also something that harkened back to their earlier days uh, as a fighting force that was out on the front lines of our nation's battles for our first 160 years. It's impossible to discuss Arlington without talking about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. How did the idea for the Tomb of the Unknowns come about? Order One was our first major overseas combat in which we had large numbers of soldiers killed in action. I mean, obviously, we had soldiers who died. Uh, in Mexico uh, during the Mexican-American War, some in Cuba or in the Philippines, mm-hmm. but nothing on the scale of World War II, almost 118,000 American, or World War I, almost 118,000 died. Yeah. Uh, that's why we have so many 
cemeteries there today. Um, most families wanted their loved ones brought home. The Army ultimately provided for that. That was a decision that was made by Congress, um, overruling the Army brass, by the way, who did not want to um, transfer all those uh, soldiers' remains back to the mainland. But war widows and war mothers thought differently, and not surprisingly, Congress sided with them, <laughs> yeah. not the Army generals. <laughs> but there were still, whether they were in Europe or whether in the United States, a uh, question of unknown remains. Mm-hmm. Um, medical science had advanced somewhat. ID tags had been introduced at that point, but it's not to the degree that we have today uh, with DNA records and dental records and so forth. So uh, there was some debate about having a kind of memorial to an unknown soldier throughout most of 1919 and some of 1920. Uh, what, what really cemented it in public opinion and in Washington was on what was then known as Armistice Day, today known as Veterans Day, November 11th, 1920. Both the United Kingdom and Westminster Abbey and France and underneath the Arc de Triomphe interred unknown soldiers from their forces. And hundreds of thousands of their countrymen turned out to mourn their loss and to celebrate uh, what they meant for that nation. And on March 4th, 1921, in one of his final acts in office, Woodrow Wilson signed the law that created the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And the unknown was selected in Europe in a very long and elaborate ceremony and then transported across the ocean into the Washington Navy Yard where he laid in state in the nation's capital before being interred at Arlington uh, on, our, again, what was then Armistice Day, now Veterans Day, 1921. Hmm. And uh, the tomb at the time was very small. It was probably only came up to a grown man's kneecap. Um, but within about 10 years, what we now know as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier had won an architect had won a design competition and the stones had been selected. And in the early 1930s, it was finished as it is today. How many different wars are represented in the Tomb of the Unknown? I think the best answer is four, even okay. though there's only three unknowns, as I write in Sacred Duty. Right. The World War I unknown was interred in 1921. Shortly after World War II ended, a law Congress passed a law to provide for the interment of a World War II unknown. Um, but then the Korean War broke out, so mm-hmm. those plans were halted. And after the Korean War ended, there was uh, a new law passed that said we're going to have a double interment for World War II and for mm-hmm. the Korean War. That happened in 1958. Um, and then in the early 1980s, uh, both Congress and veteran service organizations were um, advocating to the Reagan administration, which supported the idea of interring a Vietnam unknown. But as I mentioned earlier, medical science had advanced significantly. Uh, and the, by the Vietnam War, there were very few candidates for an unknown soldier. So the story of the Vietnam unknown, kind of like the story of that war itself, compared to those earlier wars, is longer and more complicated. Mm-hmm. There was a pilot that was shot down, um, and his remains were discovered about five or six months later. He was classified what's known as BTB, believed to be First Lieutenant Michael Blassie. Through decisions of some of the forensic experts um, in both Southeast Asia and then Hawaii, he was later reclassified as unknown. And then ultimately, he was selected as the Vietnam unknown, and he was interred on Memorial Day 1984 uh, by Ronald Reagan. But uh, various Vietnam veteran uh, who Vietnam veterans who researched these matters and turned up new evidence, uh, advocated that it was, in fact, Michael Blassie. And in 1998, the CBS Evening News ran a feature linking it to Michael Blassie, and the Blassie family wanted 
that unknown to be tested to see if it was their son, their brother. And then Secretary of Defense William Cohen uh, made the decision to disinter the Vietnam unknown, which happened in May of 1998. And within a few weeks, it was, in fact, confirmed to be Michael Blassie. He now rests mm-hmm. in Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery, just outside St. Louis, where the Blassie family was originally from. The tomb platoon still keeps him close to their hearts. They have a, uh, a headstone rubbing of his headstone from Jefferson Barracks up in their uh, tomb quarters underneath the amphitheater. And that crypt has been resealed. And now rather than simply saying the dates of the Vietnam War, which the other three crypts say simply the dates of those wars, it says uh, honoring and keeping faith with America's missing service members, 1958 to 1975. One doesn't usually associate controversy with Arlington, but it, it was a little bit of a controversy for a while. And I have to think it was a difficult situation for the Pentagon to navigate. I, I'm sure it was. Um, you know, mistakes um, happened in the classification of Lieutenant Blassie's remains. I understand why his family wanted him home, though. Um, and I think in the end, though, the the story of the Vietnam Unknown is really the story of the respect and reverence mm-hmm. and the lengths to which we will go to identify and bring home all of our missing soldiers. Yeah. Um, and if you look at it in that regard, it really is kind of a love story. True. If you can look past the controversy. And it tells a good story to all those young soldiers who serve in Arlington today, all the soldiers who come visit Arlington uh, when they're on leave, or maybe those young boys and girls who are inspired at Arlington to to join the military later in life, that no matter what happens, no matter where you may fall, no matter how long you may be missing, your nation is never going to forget you and will never give up the effort to bring you home and identify you and lay you to rest where your loved ones might want you to be. We're now at a point where there may never be another soldier buried in the Tomb of the Unknowns, not because we'll never have another war, but because, as you mentioned, modern DNA testing all but ensures that we're going to be able to identify all the remains. Is that a bittersweet idea for the old guard to contemplate that the fallen from other wars in the future might not be represented in the tomb? So, I, The working assumption uh, inside the cemetery and at the Old Guard is that there will be no more unknown soldiers interred on the plaza for the reasons you cite, that uh, with the advent of ID tags, mm-hmm. DNA records, dental records, and just the way we fight wars today, it's unlikely that we would have a set of remains that are totally unknown or that can at least be narrowed down to a small enough set of candidates that one would feel comfortable interring um, a soldier as an unknown soldier. Um I think it's not bittersweet. Some of the tomb guards agree with me on this because, again, it, it reflects the effort we put into a nation as a nation into identifying all of those soldiers who fall on the battlefield and returning them home to their families, which, again, is an inspiration and a promise we make to today's warriors as well. I also think that's one reason why the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier has now become something more than representative of the unknown soldiers who died in three wars. There was a time, you know, in the immediate aftermath of World War I, for instance, where war widows and war mothers who never got their sons and husbands back from Europe could go to the tomb and and wonder if that unknown soldier was their own, if he was now resting on American soil. Even today, um, you still have honor flights that bring in World War II and Korean War veterans. Think about those, you know, 90-something old warriors who may have lost a buddy in battle and never 
found out what happened to mm-hmm. him. They can look at that the, tomb, the or symbolic that value of it, and think that it yeah. maybe that's maybe that's yeah. my battle buddy who fell in yeah. World War II or Korea. That will eventually, though, pass away as all those veterans pass away, and the tomb becomes more than only symbolically representative of all those unknowns from those wars. I think it becomes representative of all of America's fallen heroes from Lexington and Concord up to today. And the tomb, most tomb guards can tell you they've had experiences where young widows are seen on the plaza. And they're obviously widows, the tomb guards will say, because of their dress. They're wearing black formal attire, oftentimes black veiled, looking at the changing of the guard, watching the tomb guards guard the tomb, sobbing at what they see. These are young women in their 20s or 30s. They obviously you know, were not around during the Vietnam War, much less those earlier wars, but they came to that tomb as a place to mourn the loss of their husband mm-hmm. in Iraq or Afghanistan or some other theater in the war on terrorism. I think that really reflects how the tomb has become a national place of mourning for all those who have laid down their life in defense of our nation. And it never goes unguarded, right? No matter what time of night or what weather, there's always been someone there. Midnight, July 2nd, 1937, the tomb has been guarded every moment of every day since then. Wow. The old guard has been doing it since April 6, 1948. Wow. Now, D.C. weather can be pretty brutal. It rains, it snows, and gosh, it sure is hot and humid in the summers in D.C. Uh, How do the sentinels of the tomb maintain their crisp appearance? A lot of work. (laughs) <laughs> for one. Um, so they'll divide the duty day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say the hour, the duty day during the hours of operation in the cemetery uh, in the summer months is open from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. So it's 11 hours. So any one, there's three squads, they call them reliefs. There's three reliefs. Uh, a relief may have during lean times, six to seven qualified guards during Great times, 10 or 11 qualified guards. And they'll work, you know, three or four hour shifts in that. So they'll don their uniform and keep it on so they don't get in and out of it. The summer months, uh, the shifts are only 30 minutes long because of the heat and humidity. So as I saw dozens and dozens of times, tomb guards will come back in from a shift and they'll get some water, get some Gatorade. Other soldiers who are not on duty will help square their uniform away, uh, you know, pull down their their coat underneath their ceremonial belt to get it rebloused up and tight, you know, pat them down with masking tape to get any dust or pollen that might have gotten them on, fix any smudges that might have happened uh, with their cap or their shoes, uh, help them polish down their rifle, uh, get them squared away for the shift. They'll do that for three in three or four hour blocks, you know, going every 30 minutes or maybe 30 minutes uh-huh. out of every 90 minutes. And then they'll uh, they'll be off from the day, so to speak, off from walking in public. But then they'll spend that time, you know, re- uh, repressing and preparing their uniforms again. It's a lot more wear and tear than uh, my uniform did, than a, a old guard soldier does performing uniform duty just because of the way they march. They carry rifles on both shoulders, which means um, their insignia and medals on both chests, um, you know, get damaged quickly. They always have their arms up and mm-hmm. they're um, carrying, they always have one arm up carrying the rifles. That means they're always getting wrinkles in their sleeves in a way that normal soldiers don't. So it takes a lot of work for a tomb yeah. guard. It can be, depending again on the weather conditions, it can be three to six hours during a duty shift uh, to get your uniform ready wow. again for the next day of work. Gosh, a lot of work. Now, I've been to the Tomb of the Unknowns, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have had that experience of being there when a little kid or some high school group was misbehaving or being too loud. And man, those guards, 
they strike the fear of God into them and they so, shut up real quick. Uh, can you talk about the various ways that they handle those situations? Yeah. So uh, the tomb guards are real guards, and that is an actual guard post in the army. It's not ceremonial. It's not for appearances. It's an actual guard post. And in the evening when the cemetery closes, uh, it becomes a restricted military installation, as they say, at 7 p.m. during the final changing um, of the guard or 5 p.m. in the winter months. That's why everyone's escorted out because you have – eight or 10 soldiers who are outside the perimeter of the military base, Fort Myer. Um, and that's why, you know, you have, you know, locks on all the doors underneath and password and challenge, um, all signs that it is an actual guard post. They take seriously about guarding. And um, not many people see those moments that you described on the Plaza Bend because it happens pretty rarely. You know, there's signs that say silence and respect at the tomb. Mm-hmm. Even if they didn't have those signs up, I think most visitors would understand that intuitively. But uh, on occasion, and in particular with young people and old people, um, there are moments in which the, the silence and respect, respectful atmosphere at the tomb is disruptive. Um, the most common example, as you say, is a crying child or a wayward toddler. Um, another example I learned from the tomb guards are oftentimes elderly veterans um, who have hearing aids and don't realize that they're speaking louder oh, than yeah. <laughs> they actually are. But uh, um, but it can also be, yeah. you know, an, an adult who dropped a water bottle or umbrella onto the mm-hmm. plaza and is leaning over the chains to pick it up. Sometimes, unfortunately, you can have an unruly teenager or two, mm-hmm. as teenagers sometimes can be. The tomb guards will step off the mat and they'll brandish their weapon in front of them and give directions <laughs> to the person who is disrupting the respectful atmosphere of the plaza. Now, this is a wow. good example of how those, to- those tomb guards are not robots. They're not automatons. They are given vast discretion uh, in a very public setting, even though many of them are under the age of 21 and very junior in the military to um, respond accordingly. So oh, for interesting. Instance, huh. In those two settings, I described a young child um, who's crying or uh, an elderly veteran who doesn't realize that he's speaking louder than he can hear. Um, or another example that Tomb Guard gave me, a special needs child um, who wasn't able to control some verbal outburst. Uh, they said that rather than, than step off the mat and publicly say something to them that might be embarrassing to someone who doesn't mean any ill mm-hmm. and is not being disrespectful, they might walk over to what's called the box, which is a small canvas hut just north of the tomb that has a direct hotline down to the quarters and just call down and, and say, there's you know a baby who's crying out here or, or there's a special needs child or there's an elderly veteran. And one of the tomb guards who's not on duty but is in civilian attire um, wearing a polo shirt that says Tomb of the Unknown Soldier will come out mm-hmm. and try to explain quietly uh, what the situation is. If it's a adult who's just dropped an umbrella or a Coke bottle and is leaning over the rails to get it or an unruly teenager, no, they will step off the mat. Yeah. And, in a very authoritative voice, <laughs> tell them that uh, an atmosphere of silence and respect is necessary at all times. Are there ever situations where a warning doesn't cut it? Do they ever have to escort they are, someone out? It's so sh- it's so shocking to everyone, again, because mm-hmm. m- most people will never see it. You can go on YouTube and see right. it. I mean, judge- judging by the number of YouTube videos, are pe- <laughs> yeah. people are fascinated by this. Yeah, it's true. But most people will never see it. So it's so shocking if you're just sitting there and you see that soldier walking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. All of a sudden, he steps off and brandishes his weapons and begins, <laughs> in a in a very loud command voice, yeah. directing them to ma- someone to maintain an atmosphere of silence and respect. It very quickly stops the problem. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> well, before we go, there's a good chance that this book, Sacred Duty, will inspire some Americans to visit Arlington next time they're in Washington. What would you want them to think about as they stroll those hallowed grounds? 
I would encourage them to, to think about all of those Americans who lay in that sacred ground, uh, who gave their life. And it does go back to the Revolutionary War now. Um, before, you know, this became a national cemetery in 1864, but soldiers from all the pre- nation's previous wars have been disinterred at various points in our history and reinterred there. Um, and uh, think about the sacrifice they made and what Arlington means to us as a nation, uh, that this nation is worth the fighting for. And if it wasn't for the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, the Marines, the Coast Guardmen who rest peacefully in Arlington as symbolic of all of our national cemeteries around the country and overseas, we wouldn't be able to live in in safety and in freedom Mm -hmm. um, and uh, honor their sacrifice. I would encourage all your visitors to make a pilgrimage to Arlington at some point. Well, again, the book is called Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. Senator Tom Cotton, thank you for your service and thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Senator Tom Cotton for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Sacred Duty, a soldier's tour at Arlington National Cemetery on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow him on Twitter at @sen_tom_cotton. Ancestry DNA gives you so much more than just the places you're from. They've combined DNA results with over 100 million family trees and billions of records to give you more insight into your genealogy and origins. You can even trace your ancestors' journeys over time following how and why your family moved from place to place. Go to Ancestry.com slash kick today for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. That's Ancestry.com slash kick for 20% off your Ancestry DNA kit. Ancestry.com slash kick. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Again, that's betterhelp.com kick. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.